0: We interrupt our
1: program to bring you this important message.
0: Welcome to Interrupted, the podcast of the Westar Institute, which is dedicated to advancing scholarship on the history and evolution of Christianity while exploring issues that matter to society and culture. Interrupting, enriching, and disturbing conventional religious discourse in the public square Interrupted brings the expertise of Westar scholars, guests, and practitioners to bear on important issues in the world today. Hey everyone, I'm Matthew Baker, and this is Interrupted. A few weeks back, Jordan Miller and I had a chance to speak with Keegan Ozinski about her new book titled Queering Wesley, and I'm excited to share it with you because, well, it's an important topic, and timely, and really it was just a great conversation. I've read the book, and I'd recommend it, especially to anyone hailing from Camp Wesley. Uh, My own personal background is Salvation Army, although that's not really where I'm invested these days, haven't been for a while, Um, and don't get me started (laughs) but anyway yeah you should pick it up and give it a read we'll link to where you can find the book in the show notes as well as contact info for keegan in case you want to be in touch and yeah i think that's enough to get us going here jordan gives a little bit of an introduction at the top so i don't need to do that but i do just want to thank keegan again for talking with us and for what was a very enjoyable and lively conversation, it was appreciated. If anyone's interested, we've got the mighty Jeff Robbins on deck, so something to look forward to. We're at westarinterrupted.com. Enjoy.
2: All right, so hi, everybody, um, and welcome to the next installment of Interrupted. I am joined today uh, by special guest Keegan Ozinski, who is the librarian for theology and ethics at Vanderbilt University, uh, member of the Church of the Nazarene, and author of the new book Queering Wesley, Queering the Church, uh, just out recently with Cascade Books, and by recently I mean physical copies have started arriving today. Uh, And we are all very excited for this. So hi, Keegan. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: And as usual, joined by my co-conspirator, Matt Baker. So Keegan, we wanted to talk about your book a little bit. You want to just give us a little intro about what you're up to in this thing?
1: Sure. The basic idea is I took 10 sermons by John Wesley, uh, you know, the 1700s, founder of Methodism, and I read them through a queer lens. So basically taking the tools of the literary theory, queer theory, feminist theory, and reading the sermons in such a way to kind of reimagine them for a Wesleyan tradition uh, for the church today. That is uh, a more liberatory reading um, of Wesley than we've previously been accustomed to hearing and working with in the church.
2: Wesley, who is notoriously uptight, right?
1: Right, exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, so much of what passes for debate about queerness in Christianity um, is typically reduced to proving that the Bible or a particular tradition or something doesn't actually condemn homosexuality like we thought it did, or arguing that Christianity or a particular Christian tradition is so irredeemably homophobic and sexist that it's simply not worth like trying to find a way to be a queer or affirming person in that tradition. Um, We should just abandon it entirely. Right. Um, So, and you're not doing either of those things.
1: Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was really important to me the way that I read Wesley and honestly, the way that I look at the Bible as well. Um, like you said, people want to find something redeeming in it or say like, oh, actually, the Bible isn't homophobic or sexist or what have you. It's actually very progressive. And I'm just like, this is the wrong question. This is the wrong tack to take. Uh, let's, you know, deal with these texts for what they are. Ancient texts from a completely different culture or in this case, you know, not quite ancient, but still old texts um, from a different time and place, and read them seriously for what they are. But because we have already, you know, decided that they are important to us for one reason or another, um, let's see what we can do with them. Not so much to redeem them exactly, but to give them this kind of reverence um, that finds resonance in what we are doing today and how we live our lives and how we want to be In the world, in a way that's not shitty. Uh, Can I can I curse on this?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I should have
1: I should have asked ahead of time. I I have a bit of a potty mouth.
0: I was wondering how many episodes we would get in before somebody dropped an F bomb or something, and it would probably be me. But yeah, no, that's a good response. I mean, I'm I'm sort of curious for you why Wesley, you know, like what's your personal investment there? What's your history with that tradition? That, that's one part. And then the other thing for me is just kind of thinking about the title Queering Wesley. I'm, I'm curious about the way you are using that term. I mean, I know there could be different sort of valences uh, associated with that different ways of understanding what's entailed by that term. And we don't have to get in too much into the weeds on that, but I also don't want to leave anyone behind in these conversations there may be people who listening who, you know, this is the first time they're hearing about this stuff. So
2: I've got a bunch of methodology questions too. So, um, okay, queering, great. Queering is yeah. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. Really what I was thinking. There you go. Yeah.
1: For sure. So, um, tons of people have asked me, um, you know, why Wesley, I have friends, um, at Vanderbilt, you know, colleagues who are like, you know, kind of why, what, what do you, <laughs> what do you find so interesting about Wesley? And I'm always like, Uh, nothing really, like I'm not like super into John Wesley as a person or anything like that. Um, Although I I really did come to find um, a very like, sweet affection for him as a like weirdo of a person. uh, As I was doing my research and reading about his life and reading his words. he he is just kind of a fascinating character, but um, my personal investment is really from my own situation in the church of the Nazarene, which is um, part of the Wesleyan tradition. Um, I like to call it like the evangelical version of the United Methodists. Um, So it has that Wesleyan tradition, that Wesleyan theology and doctrine, but it is um, on the evangelical side. It's also has history and influence from the Azusa street revivals and Pentecostalism in the early 1900s. And so that's where I found myself. I went to a Nazarene school for undergrad and I studied philosophy and theology there. And so that's kind of where I got um, exposed to Wesley for the first time and and started engaging in this tradition and in these churches. Um, And this is the church that I still attend today. that, that could be a very long story, but the, the short version is, even though it is a non-affirming, quite conservative uh, denomination, I have just found myself there um, in, a, in a really lovely kind of um, nurturing place with a lot of people who have cared for me over the years, um, mostly by accident. I kind of just ended up there. And so with the, the care that I've experienced and, and the friendship and the camaraderie of people in this church over the years, I've just kind of been like, okay, these are my people, you know. Um, and there's been plenty of opportunities where it's like, well, you know, this obviously isn't really a good fit for me, um, for so many reasons, but, uh, at the end of the day, I, these are my people and I love them. And so I feel like I can do some good work for them. Um, I'm in a really unique position in that I am a lay person, so I'm not ordained, um, I don't work at, say, a Nazarene school or church or anything like that. So they don't pay my bills. Um, but I am theologically educated. I have a theology degree from a Nazarene school. I have a master's in theological studies from Vanderbilt. Um, and so I'm equipped to do academic theology that works in these areas and can be useful for these churches um, in a way that a lot of the, you know, more like professional theologians of the, the Wesleyan traditions can't do for various reasons. It's, it's not safe for them. They, um, yeah. you know, again, it's not a, none of these, um, obviously there's stuff going on with the Methodists right now, but none of these um, denominations are affirming. And so to kind of put your neck out and say things and do this kind of work, um, if your livelihood depends on it is very risky. Um, so I don't run those risks, um, I can kind of do this work uh, without fear of, of repercussions. And so um, I feel a sense of responsibility, I think, to queer folks who have had to leave these traditions, um, whether they, you know, wanted to or not, as well as just a responsibility to the tradition itself, um, you know, because these people have, you know, loved me and raised me in some way, I, I feel like I can do some good for these folks. Um, so that's that's what I hope that this is. You know, I hope this project is a really kind of freeing and liberating kind of project that people can get something out of and 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 get you know some permission maybe to to be a little playful and, um, you know, engage their tradition in a new way. Um, so that's my question about why. Wesley and how I kind of found myself there. Um, And then as far as the kind of um, vocabulary piece, so queer, at the very beginning of my introduction, I do lay out fairly clearly what I mean by these words, just because I agree, it's, you know, it's important to define your terms and make sure we're all on the same page before we kind of get going. Um, So using it as a verb, so like queering Wesley, for me really is about problematizing the kind of uh, standard and normative narratives i say in my introduction also it's, it's really fucking with um so there's your there's your f-bomb sorry but it's such a useful word because it is more of that kind of silly tongue in cheek playful but it in and then you have like the sexual innuendos there and it's all kind of this is this is what we're doing we're just kind of like messing around with it um and seeing what can come out of this kind of playful engagement of like disrupting um and interrogating these, these uh, narratives that, that we that we find in the text and that we find in the tradition that has come out of the text.
2: I just wanted to, to quote you on this point. Um, you write in that passage you were just talking about that to read queerly is to look at a text from different angles and through different eyes to see what's missing or what takes up too much space to explore all the possibilities of what the text could be saying and to tease out what might be hiding closeted within the text.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like deconstruction in a nutshell,
2: right?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely so. Queer theory, I mean, has all kinds of its its roots in deconstruction, as far as philosophically, and in its you know, ultimately, it's a it's a form of literary criticism, mm-hmm. um, and it has a lot of background with um, feminist theory and criticism as well. There's a lot of overlaps, and I actually use that as well to kind of. Um, maybe bridge a little bit with um, folks who aren't as familiar with queer theory, um, but maybe have been exposed to or engaged with feminist work before, um, because it's so much of the same uh, methods and and tactics um, for for reading.
2: You're pretty active on social media, um, and I saw quite the dust up unfold when the when the first images of the cover came out. I'm assuming you're also getting a lot of positive feedback as well as some, of, some hand-wringing from more conservative folks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious about the reception that you've been getting so far, who's been reaching out to you, and if in particular those folks are mostly Nazarenes or Methodists and Salvation Army folks and other Wesleyans, or if it's kind of across the Christian spectrum, or who are you hearing from?
1: Uh, yeah, so as far as the kind of negative reaction, I mean, that's from just any kind of garden variety conservative Christian at this point. Um, the big names or whatever who who were posting about the the book cover and you know wringing their hands over it um, are related to like Wesleyan denominations. So um there's one guy who's a former president of one of the Wesleyan colleges. And then one who was a was a pastor of a large Wesleyan megachurch in San Diego. And they kind of got all of their conservative minions, like, riled up about it. And some of them are certainly Wesleyan Methodist, Free Methodist. You know, you kind of get all of those Nazarenes, of course. Um, that, but then a lot of...
2: That's got to be pretty encouraging, right, to get that kind of negative attention from that. Yeah, computer.
1: yeah, for sure, because, you know, it's the kind of thing, like if no one pays attention, if you're not, then you're probably not doing anything worth doing <laughs> uh, if you're not making some people a little bit upset. Um, the
0: pushback was just had to do with the cover.
1: Oh, yeah, this what? was not it hadn't even come out yet. Um, so
0: can can you describe that now for, for folks who haven't seen that? Because I, I don't think I've seen it either.
1: Yeah, so the cover, it's um, like a splotchy rainbow uh, with a-, a
0: O-M-G, portrait. splotchy rainbows. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> of uh, and a portrait of John Wesley, and it says, Queen Wesley, Queen the Church. And then the blurb on the back, um, which, you know, I worked very hard to, like, make it very, like, clear and also be like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. Um, they, so they were able to like read the back cover and get a little sense of, of what was inside. Um, that was it. And that was enough. Um, yeah, well, actually splashy, splashy
0: rainbows will get you every time.
1: That uh, Yeah. And I'm the word queer, true. I think the word, yeah, yeah. the word queer was a real big, uh, no uh trigger point for sure. Yeah. And one, uh, one interesting, I mean, I've had several conversations about this and, and one thing that I kind of kept returning to is the fact that none of these people are going to read it anyways. So like, it's just as well that they get worked up over the cover and then move on, which it seems like they have. Um, I've kind of been wondering if there, there'll be like another round of it once it's actually available. And honestly, I kind of don't think there will be because at that point, it's like, what are they going to do? Like buy the book and read it and then like have some like, you know, measured response? Like, of course not. So Um, and that is just as well, because I'm not writing it for them. It's not a polemical work. I mean, I've been working on this in bits and pieces for the last four years or so. And, you know, every time I would give a paper at a conference or something, you know, sharing a little bit of it, there would be, you know, plenty of people who'd be like, "Eh, I don't like it. But then there would be people, especially young people, especially college students, who would just like swarm me afterwards and be like, this is great. We wanna have these conversations. This is important to us. And I was like, yeah, this is, these are my people. This is who I'm writing it for because these are the people who need to hear that you can do this kind of work. You can be this kind of person. You can free yourself up from these like crank pots that are so upset about, uh, you know doing anything differently ever. And, you know, like I'm sure a lot of these students that I've talked to probably won't stay in the church, certainly not the Church of the Nazarene. And, you know, it's not as if I'm trying to keep them there, but, you know, I think if I can give some sort of um, refreshing or encouraging word to them through my work, that's what I'm trying to do.
0: So I was actually going to ask you about the audience, and maybe you can sort of like, you know, elaborate on that a little bit. But one of the things I noticed about the text it does have a certain tone on one hand it is very much an academic text an example of good scholarship and that kind of thing um but there's also like some good sermon material in there some of this stuff would preach and so i was just curious yeah like who's this for is it, so is it really just for that younger crowd who do you imagine kind of reading this book how do you think people are going to be engaging uh with this yeah
1: yeah i had a really broad sense of who it was really for like in my heart it is for the for the young the young kids um but it really is i wanted it to be you know widely accessible um i think what i the phrase i use most often is accessible academic so it is academic it has a lot of research behind it but um my writing style is a little bit informal a little bit um I don't know, I have I feel like I've always had the same writing voice since I was about 12. <laughs> um, and so that that's just how it comes out. Um, and a couple of the chapters and the introduction were written as part of my um, master's thesis. And I remember in my like defense or conversation or whatever, when I was finishing that up, I remember Ellen Armour telling me like, this is, there's, you're preaching in here. (laughs) And I was like, okay. I mean, because there is a sense in which this is a lot of stuff that I believe very deeply. And I, you know, want to express clearly. Um, So I think it's certainly useful for preachers, for pastors who, who are, Um, engaged in these kinds of conversations and want to kind of um, spread their awareness, open up their, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, Source material resources for, for the kinds of things that they're working on. So yeah, I, I hope that it is something that it has a lot of fertile ground there. Again, like there's so much that I didn't do, in this book that, you know, especially as I was reading it through in in the last stages of editing that I'm like, Oh my God, I could have done this. I could have done that and realizing like, okay, but I didn't have to do all that. Like other people are going to pick this up and they're going to keep taking it um, into these other places and have, have these, uh, you know, fun little jaunts with John Wesley's uh, words and I really want to encourage people to do that to continue this work. And it, this is this is a starting point. This is not in any ways like this is what a queer reading of Wesley is like. Um, it's more like I wanted to model uh, what that kind of work could look like for others.
2: So to the point about um, kind of doing it for the kids biographically, my biological parents met at Wesley Seminary. Um, And we're both ordained United Methodist. My mother is bisexual. She left the denomination. But she she always has told the story, and I heard this growing up, that when she was kind of a a preteen and then young teenager going to Methodist churches as a kid, she was really shocked when the other girls her age were expressing preferences for boys and boys only because she heard from the pulpit every Sunday, love everybody the way God loves everybody. And she, like she assumed the default was that everybody was bi. And, and that was like grounded in a child's understanding of what Christian theology was about, right? Um, so when you do like the, the holiness, God's perfect love thing um, fairly early on in the book and you do a, a, a queering of that, like that that story from my mother's childhood immediately came to mind. And it seems like there's a there's a great continuity there. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you make that argument?
1: Yeah, so I think a lot of how I've come to think about holiness, a lot of it is filtered through Mildred Bangs-Weincoop, who um, wrote, she's a Nazarene theologian. She wrote a book um, in the 70s called A Theology of Love, which kind of changed the game for a lot of Wesleyan or at least Nazarene uh, theology from this idea of holiness as kind of a purity or like a pietism to this definition that I always use that she pulls from Wesley, which is that holiness is perfect love of God and neighbor. And so it seems like a really easy kind of step to make to talk about, okay, so it's already established. Like No one's really gonna fight me on this fact of holiness as love. And so then we just have to think about, well, okay, then what what does love look like? How can it look? And I mean, I I think it's fairly easy to make that leap to be like, love is all kinds of things. We have all kinds of different loves. Um, Bring C.S. Lewis in here. Like, come on, like- Don't you dare.
0: Not on this podcast.
1: <laughs> just kidding. See, see, we all need to open up our minds a little bit one way or the other. <laughs> um, but so not only this idea of love in the sense of like friendship or brotherhood or something like this, or even just like sexual or romantic love, but all of these things working together and in different ways on in different registers. So this idea of love being all these different things. And then if you just think in your own life, in your own relationships, what love looks like, you know, even just with one person, with your spouse, with your children, you know, with your mother, whatever. um, It looks like different things at different times, in different seasons of your life, in different moments, depending on the situation and the context. And so why would that be different for holiness? It just kind of grew out of that. And I think, that thought process and that logic like just seems so obvious to me. Um, And, and that's kind of the same with so much in this book that it just kind of, it it wasn't hard to do. There were so many points where I was like, I feel like I'm doing something really groundbreaking here, but it shouldn't be. (laughs) Like really shocked that no one has done this before. Um, It's, it's not, Difficult work. I'm not like special in any way to do this work, Um, but it it, it's 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 right there. It's so easy to do.
0: That's an interesting feature of Wesley. I find I I I come from that um, from that background, and I mean I have a much better handle on it these days. I think for a lot of people, Wesleyan theology sounds kind of arcane and complicated, and it's weird because when you when you kind of get down to it, as you're saying. It's just like this really simple thing. It's love God, love others. It's really really that simple. So I've always found that juxtaposition an interesting one. Um, Yeah, I
1: was really surprised when I started really getting into these sermons and reading them over and over and like digging through. And when I was first deciding which ones I wanted to use, just being shocked at like how great they were (laughs) and how they weren't as bad as I thought. There were some that were pretty bad. And I do get into some stuff in... um, the book doing some like kind of post-colonial critiques of Wesley himself, because I was like, okay, we can't, we can't just bypass this. This is real bad. (laughs) Um, But for the most part, as far as the kind of like Methodist, like disciplinary kind of strict pietism that I was expecting, I mean, there's just also just so much spaciousness in Wesleyan theology. Um, And that's really what keeps me engaged with it. Even in the Church of the Nazarene, like our manual. We have really, we have like a really great statement. Our article four on, on scripture is actually really nice. (laughs) And there's lots of like room in there that I don't think is being used. Like we have this like huge, like airplane hangers worth of space to work in. And we're all like shoved in this corner and like getting like smacked with a ruler. If you like step one step this way, it's like, what we have all this space. Why don't we use it? I want to do cartwheels over here.
0: What's article four?
1: It's the statement on scripture. And basically it's, it's talking about, um, inerrancy, but, um, it's just this idea of that, you know, the scriptures are, um, inerrant in all things necessary for salvation specifically. Um, not that they are.
0: That's a good qualification.
1: Yeah, exactly. And especially because at that point you can kind of read, well, what is necessary for salvation? What are we like? There's, there's a lot of debate to be had there. There's a lot of room for conversation. Um, so it's, it, there's no sense in which it's, it's a you know required fundamentalist kind of literalist reading of scripture at all.
0: Yeah. I mean, since we're talking about salvation, one of the things that I think is helpful is the, um, the fairly straightforward connection that you make between love and salvation, you write in here uh, what I do with it. To be saved from sin is to be made perfect, but being made perfect is to be made perfect in love. So there's this kind of like circularity to it, right? You're like saying this. It's, it sounds redundant in a way. <laughs> and I, yeah. and I, I hear this thing a lot these days. Um, when I go over to my brother's house, he's got this um, like yard sign in his front yard, just says love is love. And every time I hear that or read that, it sort of strikes me as this variation of God is love, which works in reverse, both of which sound a little bit circular. And I don't know, maybe just make, maybe can draw some of these more theological connections within a queer Wesleyan framework.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like a sense in which that kind of language is very trite and not helpful and like bad. Um, but I think at the same time, it, it kind of sets a stage and a foundation for exactly that question. Like, okay, well, what do you mean then? You know, if love is love, it's like okay, but uh, what? And that's a good thing. That's where you. That's where you start that process of querying, that process of disruption and interrogation, because you have to really kind of get in there and kind of like what what is that, um, and find those kind of cracks, and um, you know wedge get a wedge in there um, and see see what comes out
2: in talking about why you chose the sermons you chose to to investigate um, you talk about how they just felt queer to you when you were reading them and I got like this image of you in the library being cruised by Wesley's sermons uh, <laughs> like making eyes at you from across the room right um, what's your favorite Wesley sermon
1: I think my favorite one was probably I really did like a caution against bigotry. That's the one where um, Wesley is using the text um, from Mark, where the disciples see another wonder worker driving out demons and the disciples are like, don't worry, Jesus, we stopped him. And Jesus is like, what the fuck? Like, why would you do that? Um, And I thought that was a really good sermon that I, you know, was able to kind of to bear in terms of like queer life in the church and the role of queer clergy for the church. Um, And then I also really liked on charity because there's just, again, like he's talking about love and what love looks like. And if that's kind of the basis for his whole deal, there's just so much there that's really rich to to kind of play around with. Um, And I found myself... like, well, I could do this. Well, I could do this. Well, I could do this. And it was kind of hard to like decide. Um, but yeah, uh, it's hard to choose at this point. And it's like, you know, choosing a favorite child. I love them all.
2: (laughs) So is is the next project going to be on Asbury or somebody? Oh God, no. (laughs) Um, I mean, you, you mentioned at the top that you don't have like a special love for Wesley. You came to have an affection for some of this work, but, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, Is there, is there something about Wesley that you really don't like?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I think for as much as I could see the kind of openness and spaciousness in his work, I don't think he felt that way. Um, I think a lot of the stuff here that I've done is, you know, and people are going to like criticize me for like, you know, putting words in Wesley's mouth or like taking, you know, doing with Wesley's work, something that he would never have done. And I'm like, yeah, I know that's kind of the point. Um, But I think that's, that's kind of something that he missed out on. Like there is a sense that he is, you know, that disciplined and that strict and he wasn't able to kind of like let go and be free in this certain way that his work actually can encourage us to be. Um, You know, there's this, there's so many stories of him, uh, making decisions based on, you know, casting lots, right. Throwing dice and like being like, this is God's will. You know, I'm going to roll these dice and God, if you give me an even number, then that's what I'm going to do. And if you give me an odd number, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm just like, come on, man, like follow your heart. Like that's don't do that. Um, anyways, <laughs> I don't know if that really helps. I like, I probably would not have gotten along with Wesley in person.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it, it gets to the point, you know, about the will and about uh, desire. You talk quite a bit about desire in the book. You know, I'm a kind of indirect descendant um, intellectually of of Charles Winkwist who wrote a book called Desiring Theology. And so my ears perk up whenever, uh, you know, whenever I hear talk about that. Um, You know, you you talk about, for instance, Nicodemus' um, desire to be with Jesus, right? And that's the thing that's kind of driving the way that he's interacting in that story. Um, can you talk a little bit about desire and theology?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a really that's a really great question, and and I think there's so much there that I wish I could work more with that I didn't get to um, in the book. Like it's definitely there, and it's definitely a very important piece of you know queer life and queer theory, and like there's oh there's so much there. As far as Nicodemus, you know, I also think I mean. I think of the hemorrhaging woman, which was just in the lectionary a couple of weeks ago. And I've done a lot of work um, on that text as well, just, you know, for funsies. And I think of her desire too, of just like, I, I just know, I just need to touch Jesus's cloak. Based on what? Like, where did that come from? You know, like, why would you think that? I mean, I guess there's reasons that you could think that. But she just like, she's just like, I don't know. I just, I just need to do it. And the same with Nicodemus, he's like, I need to, I need to go see this person at night. Like I, whatever it is, like this just like um, draw, you know, this feeling of, of like just being pulled by that, like, you know, fishing line or whatever that you just, it's like this kind of irresistible um, need. And yeah, so I think with Nicodemus, you have this, this idea of Um, this is in the the new birth chapter, I think. Um, and it goes along with this idea of, of needing to be born again and needing to move into a new kind of life. And of course, like, even once Jesus kind of explains this to explains, I mean, air quotes, um, to Nicodemus, he still doesn't get it because like, what like I think I have a line about you know needing to be born from the birth canal of of the one that Jesus calls Father. There's like it's very weird, but it's it's still that kind of visceral need that's it's kind of inexplicable. Um, so you know, as far as desiring theology, I guess I kind of can relate to that. I mean, at this point, I feel like in my life, in my career, theology itself is quite boring to me. Um, but once in a while, I read something or, you know, with this project, I get writing and, and it's, it is this kind of visceral desire, this need of like, there's just this feeling in my belly of, of uh, excitement and um, wonder and like fun that I want to get back to that I'm really engaged with in this work that is like for me at least missing from a lot of theology that I'm just like so bored of at this point I don't want to do it I don't want to read it I don't want to write it um and so for me like desire has to be part of it or else I'm just not interested. I'm too, I'm too old for that. Like <laughs> life's too short. Like I need to be enjoying it. Um, or else it's just not, not worth my time.
0: Yeah. So Jordan mentioned, um, uh, Winquist in there. I'm also, uh, a reader of, of Winquist. And, um, and I think that sort of impulse comes through in your writing. It's, it's less about a desire for truth, but you're not doing like an apologetic task or, you know, doing proof texting and stuff like that. It's not a desire for truth exactly. It's, it's a, It has more to do with the truth of desire. Um, and I think that sort of need, that impulse uh, that you were talking about is not really possible apart from the work of love that we've been kind of talking about, but it's a certain kind of love, right? It's not like, like agape is not going to get you there, right? So can you can you maybe talk about the role of love In your own work and in your engagement with Wesley. I mean, he's, is he, is he talking about Eros? Like, does he get specific in that, in that way or, or not really?
1: Probably I would say not really. Um, but I think, but again, like it's one of those things where you can, you can start with whatever he's saying and kind of like draw from it and kind of find yourself in this other kind of space. Um it's it's not impossible. It's not actually a far leap. Um so in my chapter on the general deliverance, um, that chapter is one I think I found myself kind of really digging into those themes about like desire and the erotic. And I bring in Audrey Lorde and her um work on the erotic and and this idea of a of a creative force of love um, that I think is certainly. Uh, you know, you can see this in like Genesis creation stories, you can see it in this like idea of incarnation. Um, and you can see it in like the interpersonal, um, which I think is also a piece that is really important to to Wesley, you know, because so much of his work is really actually material and and focused on the poor. And, you know, the, the working class people, you know, he got in so much trouble just because he's like, there's all these like workers out in the field, like, let's go preach to them. They have needs. Let's give them food. And the Anglicans were like, you can't preach outside. And he was like, but that's where the people are. Um, and so he has this his own kind of like erotic desire and draw to do this kind of work. Um, again, like uh, he, I don't he wouldn't have thought it that way, I don't think. But you can see it very clearly. Um And so, yeah, I think in in that chapter, talking about desire, talking about pleasure as a piece of of that um, and the importance of pleasure for holiness, actually, that holiness doesn't have to be this really restrictive or limiting or, um, you know, self-flagellating kind of um, experience, but it can actually be in the pursuit of pleasure because pleasure ultimately signifies goodness and signifies love and these are all of a piece um and they're they're not mutually exclusive like there is a real there can be a real pleasure in holiness in holy love um and i think that yeah there's something certainly really queer about that it tracks with um this like queer life queer aesthetics like this this queer understanding of the world that does um, in many places center pleasure and desire in a way that um, heteronormative society actually doesn't.
2: Yeah, I I really appreciate the way that you in the book um, kind of ground that all in embodiment, Um, that it's not, you know, merely intellectual or thought desire um, but it, that it's grounded in physical feeling, like in a body. Um, in the Nicodemus section we talked about before, um, you talk about being birthed of the father's birth canal, but then you you talk about being born again, uh, and I'll kind of paraphrase you here, uh, that birth is about life, which is of pain and mess and fluids and bellies and genitals. Um, and And so kind of reframing especially what I think a lot of people think of with Wesley as kind of a, a more intellectual process in terms of those very physical experiences um, is, is really powerful. I, I don't know. What do, What do you think about the embodiment stuff?
1: Yeah, I think that was another piece that I just felt like I had to include if I'm thinking queerly, um, you know, that's just such an important piece of queer life and experience is that kind of embodied bit, especially for folks who have been, you know, suppressing and denying their embodied, you know, responses and feelings and things. Um, And I think also, like, in the writing of it, I think, you know, I have several, you know, like the, the drafts and the, the things that got cut and the things that I wrote just to like get the writing started for the day. And I remember writing one that was about, you know, like how I was feeling in my body to write this chapter or whatever, like how do and how do I bring these feelings into the work? Because they're here in my body when I'm doing this work and that matters and that is impacting what I'm writing. Um, so, you know, like I have, I I mean, I personally have like memories and feelings in my body when I was writing certain parts of this book. And um, it was important to me to convey that in some way that like I am a body writing this book. You're a body reading this book. And those bodies matter. And those bodies are where all of this experience and thinking and desiring and loving, that's where they like come to bear. And so I, I think that was really important to me to, to, to get across in my writing so that the people who are reading it, don't forget that their bodies. Cause I think, you know, especially as academics, we kind of, there you know, we were like, Oh, we're a brain on a stick or a brain in a jar or whatever, you know, we, we can kind of forget when we're literally sitting at a desk reading all day or writing, Um, I think it's for me, it's easier to remember I'm embodied when I'm writing for some reason. But when I'm reading, I will forget that I exist for hours at a time. (laughs) Um, And so I'm hoping that that doesn't happen when people are reading my book. They can they can kind of get embodied a little bit as well um, and and kind of transfer some of that information as, you know, bodily information, because I think you know, queer experience and like sexuality and gender is all very embodied. And to, so to just to just deal with it exclusively or primarily on an intellectual level just is not enough. And frankly, I, I think it's kind of irresponsible.
0: I share a similar experience when I, when I read Um, it can, can feel very disembodied. So actually I became aware of this um, not that long ago, maybe in the the last year. And so just in case anyone's listening uh, pro tip, read out loud, you know, you just, you start engaging more of your uh, your body, your voice into it. Maybe even like, you know, drag your finger like a child along the page. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. I find it makes a difference. So anyway.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely, now I I do more of that or I, you know, I do, I I mostly read library books, so I don't mark them up quite as much as I would if they were my own books, but I definitely always have like a notebook at at the side. And so I can like write and doodle and, you know, things like that to keep my body engaged while I'm reading.
2: (laughs) Egan, what do you want people to know about Wesley?
1: You know, this project is less about Wesley at the end of the day um I I want them to know that they can take Wesley and do something fun and meaningful and new with his work
2: and not just Wesley right like that that process can be applied to pretty much any source material.
1: Right, exactly, exactly. For me it the Wesleyan bit like it was important for me to stay very faithful to a Wesleyan kind of ethos of, you know, like I, I, I've been in the Wesleyan tradition long enough to know what, if something feels Wesleyan or, you know, I, I know, you know, what Wesleyan is like. And so I wanted really badly to stay faithful to that tradition and to, to be in that tradition and not just to kind of like, take Wesley out and like do something with him over here. Like nobody cares. Like if you're not in, like, why would I do that? So like to, to take Wesley to do something different and fun and useful with him, that's still like within this kind of tradition Mm -hmm. and space where it's legible.
2: That really surprised me um, both in reading it on the page and in how you've been talking on this, on this call that, Um, you talk about the Wesleyan tradition as if it's a singular thing. Um, and I I figured that was deliberate because to me, the kind of obvious queer reading of that would be to pluralize tradition, right. And to, and to break it into a multiplicity and to try to, try to, um, break the stranglehold of a, a unitary vision. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about why it's a tradition for you?
1: Yeah. Okay. So I think in one sense, it's singular because it's already plural. So I use Wesleyan tradition because that is easier than naming off like, United Methodist, Free Methodist, Nazarene, Salvation Army, like, so it's already has all of these, you know, like, oh, the Wesleyans, they're their own denomination, you know, like, there's all of these separate denominations that nonetheless are Wesleyan denominations obviously they have all their differences but they do have this kind of like core of Wesley as source material and I wanted it to be applicable um, and relevant to all of these traditions you know like obviously there's a lot of Nazarene stuff in there just because that's what I'm familiar with and there's you know quite a bit of Methodist stuff just because that's kind of like the larger more uh available kind of stuff. Um, But I think it's, it should be, I want it to be relevant for largely any Wesleyans. And I I think I, I do, this is, this is a really good question. I hadn't thought about it. Um, But I do some work in there with kind of problematizing. I use Laurel Schneider's Beyond Monotheism. Um, pretty significantly in one of the chapters to talk about the logic of the one and how that breaks down at every point. Um, and so in this case too, you have the one Wesleyan tradition, you know, from the progenitor of one Wesley. But even then, you still have Charles Wesley. Like there's there's a, there's a multiplicity of Wesleys. You got Susanna Wesley, you know, like all right, mom. Like so, there's all of these kinds of influences already there. Um, and then you have all the influences down the years um, who find themselves one way or another contributing um, in different ways. And there's conflict within them, too. Uh, and that's kind of the basis of this. Right. I talk about the conflict in you know, the 60s and 70s uh, with Wine and how she kind of like shook things up with this new idea. And I'm basically saying, like, all right, it's time to time to do that again. We need to kind of rethink things a little bit, but in the same vein. I I use this image a lot, which is like kind of cheesy, but I think it's useful of the tradition as kind of like a stream or a river. And the idea that like the tradition is not one thing back there that we like keep looking at, like the farther and farther away we get from it. But it's the stream that we kind of jump into in the middle of. And we receive all of this that's coming from the past, but it's also going into the future. And we can like stick a big rock here if we want and change its direction. Um, We can do this kind of work. Um, And so, and even like, you know, one river is like a bajillion little water droplets. Well, yeah,
0: and you never step into the same river twice. So you never step Um, into the same Wesleyan tradition twice, I suppose.
1: Right.
0: (laughs) yeah, but I mean, oh, when you were talking about like the um, different Wesleys, have you seen the uh, the most recent Spider Man movie, Into the Spider Verse, where like no. all the different Spider Men's come from the different dimensions? I just had, well, if somebody out there is like super nerdy and has like a lot of extra time and money, that would be fun. Um, I love
1: that idea. Like, let's let's say there was like one actually gay Wesley out there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> one actually gay Wesley. <laughs> But I mean, listen, the three of us are all on the same page in terms of like multiplicity within the tradition and that sort of thing. And you, you sort of uh, flagged it before, but without really addressing it, but just coming from a Wesleyan background, it's not hard for me to imagine a lot of folks, you know, died in the wool Methodists who will be confused by this project, right? Because, um, you know, Wesley was not, as far as I know, concerned with these sorts of issues. And maybe I, maybe I have that wrong. But I can hear someone saying, <laughs> I can think of like individual people, you know, saying, hey, what are you talking about? Queering This is, a, this is at least an anachronistic exercise. So I don't know. How would you just ad- address that? Cause I feel like that would be like the first one people think.
1: Yeah. Of. Uh, it, yeah, of course. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> it is an anachronistic ec- exercise. Um, uh, I'm not trying to say, yeah, I mean, this is great. We've like kind of bookended this conversation yeah, because yeah. I, you know, I'm not trying to say, well, actually, Wesley would have been an affirming minister. Like, no, I wouldn't even, you know, he's not even like a proto affirming minister. Um, and, and that's okay. I mean, I don't think we need him to be because we can be today. We, there's no reason we can't be. Um, and so, yeah, I think I, I totally understand that, that criticism. Um, and it's, it's not really accurate, because that's not what I'm trying to do. And I think it, it would be problematic or difficult to shoehorn right I mean this is you run into this with all kinds of like progressive Christians in the bible right trying to shoehorn these things that aren't really there either so I think instead of like fooling myself into like saying like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna do it I'm gonna make Wesley affirming I was like I'm not even gonna mess around with that I'm going to do something different I'm going to see what I can use Wesley for that is affirming that is liberative and see what comes out of that you know it's it really is it's an experiment it's playful it's a you know a model for um further work and further discussion um it's certainly not any kind of finalized uh you know i think i say in the in the conclusion you know wesley was not a systematician um and neither am i so like yeah it's not gonna be consistent sorry <laughs> I wasn't really trying to be <laughs>
2: yeah method but not system, right yeah, yeah. the original method man
1: <laughs>
2: you've uh you've been doing uh, quite the media blitz uh I know you're gonna be on a handful of podcasts and you're you're getting asked lots of questions um Is there something you think your interviewers, us or otherwise have have missed about this project that you wish you'd been asked?
1: I don't think so i think i I've been able to really get across what I'm trying to do. Be really clear about. I mean, that last question about like the anachronism. Like, yeah, that's a really you know that's an important piece that needs to be made clear um, of what I'm trying to do here. Um, And the piece about the tradition is really the important piece that this is this is a movement. This is like an an outcropping. No, it's a continuation of of a tradition. It's not a replication or a reproduction of. Uh, of a of a tradition, um, I'm really grateful for y'all to have me on and and to have engaged the the work. I think I mean it's the biggest thrill knowing that people are like reading my stuff and actually finding it interesting or enjoyable or or any anything besides terrible.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're we're really glad to have you here. Um, I mean, I was I was really excited, whatever it was, four years ago when when that first kernel of a paper came out. Um, and so to see the project develop has, has been really great. Um, I'm super excited that the book is out. Me um, too. Incidentally, the book is Keegan Ozinski's Queering Wesley, Queering the Church out with Cascade Books, uh, which is an imprint of Wipfenstock. Um, you have any other stuff you want to plug?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I'm happy to hear feedback. I'm happy to, you know, talk to your class or your church or your youth group or whatever. I'm really happy to engage. I really think this is the beginning of a conversation. Um, So I'm happy to have these conversations. Um, I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Keegs with three Zs. And my email address is keeganosinski at gmail.com.
2: We'll put all that stuff in the description as well. So you can get directly to those links. Um, Matt, you got anything else?
0: No, just to say thanks. This was a great conversation. It was, it was great to meet you. And um, thank you. Thank you, Keegan, very much. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Interrupted, the Westar Institute podcast. If you would like to learn more about the Weststar Institute or become a member, visit weststarinstitute.org. Interrupted is
1: produced by Jordan Miller and Matthew Baker. We hope you'll join us again next time.